It's now time for On the Line with Cheryl Wilkerson. The conversation will range from local dialogue to international. This show is meant to enlighten, inform, and to inspire. On the Line with Cheryl Wilkerson begins now. Hello and welcome to On the Line. I'm your host, Cheryl Wilkerson. Thank you for joining me Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. I appreciate that. I realize you don't have to do it, but you do it. So for that, I say I am thankful, thankful, thankful. Today's guest, he's a young man that you've been seeing in the news, you've been hearing about him. Well, today you get to hear from him firsthand. How about that? You probably first heard about him um, as former vice mayor of Charlottesville. Remember when all the drama went down in Charlottesville and he came under attack because why? He wanted to pull down some crazy statues of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. We welcome to the show today, Dr. Wes Bellamy. Hello, how are you? Hey, how you doing? Thank you so much for having me. I'm elated and excited to be here. You know, I was thinking about you uh, wanting to pull down those statues. So I'm in Richmond part of the time and Norfolk part of the time. And I was thinking about you going after those statues. Dr. Bellamy, did you have any notion at the time how serious that was going to become? (laughs) That's a great question. I think um, sometimes in our youth, being naive can be uh, a gift as well as a curse. Um, For me, it was both. Uh, Initially, when the idea first was brought forth to me um, in regards to leading an effort to remove the statues, uh, I had a campaign cookout the first time I ran for office in 2013 uh, at what was then known as Lee Park, and there weren't many people who showed up to the park. So Saturday, I usually would have a, a bunch of folks coming, and when I went to church the next day, um, several uh, of the elders pulled me to the side and said, hey, you know, that was really disrespectful, having something at the park. Do you know that my brother had his face slashed at that park? Oh. And I was so mean about how they were spat on at that park and, and kind of those statues being there symbolize a lot of different things. Well, from my vantage point, I wasn't understanding until that point. And then after that, I'm like, okay, we, we're going to have to do something to get these removed. At the time, I couldn't because of state law, but I kind of vowed to myself that if there was ever an opportunity to do so, then you will, uh, then I would. Fast forward to 2016, I'm having a conversation with Governor McAuliffe, and he's like, well, what a then Governor McAuliffe, and he's like, well, what are some of the things you want to do? And I said, I really want to get those statues removed. And he says, well, you know, just wait until the end of this session. I might have something for you, but I want you to understand what this truly means. And, you know, I'm thinking, hey, I, I got the most votes in history. I'm the first person that went out to precincts. I work with kids. These folks around here love me. It won't be a big deal. We'll just get them removed. But lo and behold, uh, several people tried to warn me. And it wasn't until, actually, when we had our, our first press conference when there were about 300 Confederate uh, sympathizers mm. at the park trying to surround us and I'm then being bombarded with thousands of emails and, and death threats. Is that, that's kind of what I recognized and understood. Okay, this is, this is different. This means something. But I'm always down for a fight. And I firmly believe that God covers us when we do things for the right reasons. So mm-hmm. uh, it was all worth it. uh, It is amazing when you think about these statues that were erected and just the thought that the men, they committed treason. If you read the Constitution, those that commit treason are supposed to be put to death. Yet you drive all around, you know, Charlottesville, Richmond, and you see all these monuments, huge, huge monuments. 
and just left there for years and years and years. And then when people pick up arms such as you did to do something about it, I'm sure yourself, you weren't the only one attacked. Your your entire family was attacked. Right, right, right. My, my children uh, had their elementary schools threatened with bomb attacks. Uh, a lot of different things said to my father at the time. You know, it, it's, it's like you alluded to, it's not just a one-person thing when you kind of take on these kind of initiatives. Uh, my community as a whole was, was under fire, but I think that it was well worth it because, one, it showed the power of us being able to, again, work together. But secondly, um, you know, when you're doing things, again, for the right reason, I firmly believe that God covers you. Mm-hmm. And when we do his work and we carry out his will, then we're able to, to move mountains and, and in this case, uh, move statues. You let's go back. You were born in Georgia and got a degree from South Carolina State University and then got two degrees from Virginia State University. And currently you are running the political science department there at Virginia State University. How did that all come about from Georgia to Virginia? What's the story? Yeah, I was born in South Carolina. I moved to Atlanta when I was uh, maybe one or two, but my whole family lives in South Carolina. It was just my mother and I in okay. Atlanta. Um, so went to you know, went back to school and went to undergrad in South Carolina to be closer to the family there. Kind of South Carolina State was three hours from Atlanta, three hours from my family in Atlantic Beach, South Carolina, which is one of the last black-owned beaches on the entire East Coast. Um, and then I got a job offer from a South Carolina State alum. Uh, my junior year in undergrad to, to come to Charlottesville um, right after graduating. So took the offer, and then people always ask me, how'd you get here? And I just say, it was God. So shortly after uh, moving to Charlottesville, um, quit the job because I wanted to do more community work, spent a lot of time in our public housing sites. Um, was going to go to law school, got into law school, deferred law school, wound up becoming a teacher, um, and kind of had to make a decision. Am I going to go off to law school or am I going to continue to do community work and and continue being a teacher and I chose the city of Charlottesville so I went and got my master's from Virginia State it was really important for me to get all of my degrees from HBCUs Mm. Um, and Virginia State reminded me a lot of South Carolina State so got my master's from there simultaneously running for office Um, and in the time in which I run my election um, I was starting a doctoral program so got my doctorate and um, I actually defended my dissertation on the same day in which the white supremacist attacked on August 11th um, in Charlottesville. So I became doctor and then had some, some other issues in Charlottesville at the same time. And wow. Shortly after, yeah, a little crazy, a little crazy, but uh, shortly after um, starting at state, after I got my doctorate, I became um, an adjunct professor. And then it kind of just moved up the ranks relatively quickly. Within a year, I became the department chair, and now this is year five. And I absolutely love it. I love being at VSU. Um, I love being with my people. I love the experience that we provide to our students and our scholars. And um, I'm really happy that uh, God has blessed me with these opportunities. Before we get off the issue of the statue, let me ask you this. Uh, So you wrote that book. Monumental. It was never about the statue. What was it about? It was about white supremacy. And I think more than anything else, uh, the, the statue removal and the resistance to the statue removal was not about the 
the, the, the enclaves of stone. It was really about, honestly, white people within a certain uh, geographical area feeling as if what they know to be true, i.e. white folk who are inherently superior, uh, having to deal with the fact that there were black folk, and specifically this young black man who's not even from Virginia, telling them that their way of life is different and is wrong, mm -hmm. and changing what they've known to be, uh, and pushing an envelope in this regard. And I think uh, empowering people of color, and specifically black folk within this area, and gaining allyship from white folk and waking up there and opening their eyes for them to understand just the, the many systems of white supremacy or how those systems were operating around us. Creating that kind of change and that momentum is what led to uh, the attacks, uh, not only in, in, in August of 2017, but the Klan coming on my one-year wedding anniversary, or uh, the Mother's Day of 2017 as having the first Tiki Torch rally, or you know some of these these bold notions of resistance to us saying that we're going to remove the statues, both covert and overt, mm -hmm. uh, is really what the, the monument removal was all about. And then ultimately us seeing a movement across not only the state in Norfolk, we saw those statues be removed. And then subsequently after that, um, in Richmond, those statues mm -hmm. being removed as well. And to a certain extent here in Charlottesville, we were the catalyst for that change and, I, and I'm really proud of our communities and again it was it was worth it in every sense of the word. I want to discuss some different topics with you, so I'm just going to jump around. And, oh, I guess I should mention that, you know, the rector here at Norfolk State University is Devin Henry, who actually pulled, yeah, pulled those statues down, and he can relate about the death threats and how nobody else wanted that job, those jobs, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. So this is something that I just, I struggle with this one right here. What is the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus really doing for Black Virginians? Mm. That's a great question. I think that they're, they're moving and pushing a great deal of policy, but we ought to understand that policy is nuanced. So, I mean, when you look at something, someone like former delegate who's now running for uh, state senator, Lasharice Ayer, mm -hmm. and Brianna's Law coming to Virginia and banning no-not warrants, I think that's, that's absolutely huge. When you look at some of the work of, of Senator then Senator McCullen, now Congresswoman uh, McCullen, when it comes to not only ERA protection, but specifically for, for black folk just uh, securing certain funding. When you look at the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus's efforts in terms of the capital funds that they've been able to secure and allocate for Norfolk State, Virginia State, to public HBCUs here in Virginia, like those things mean a great deal. Policy isn't always sexy, mm -hmm. um, it's not always loud. And sometimes it takes time to see the fruits of the labor, okay. but it is of the utmost importance. And for that, you know, I, I always will say that there's more that our elected officials and the former elected officials, there's always more in which we can do, but I don't think we can discredit, not saying you are, mm -hmm. but I think it's important that we don't discredit the work in which they're doing as well. Okay. Uh, it was splashed across all of America, probably all of the world, that we, we had a six-year-old child that went to school and pulled out a handgun and shot his teacher. So what must the community, the white community, the black community, the community, what must we do to step up 
to educate our children. Don't they deserve a happy, balanced life? Why has it gotten to the point where, you know, I was talking to an educator the other day, and she told me that she had um, gone into a different classroom. She wasn't a teacher. She was an aide or something like that. And she had been hearing this teacher talk about the fact that there was one little boy that came to class, and he was always smelling like weed. And she would hear this from his normal teacher. But when she went in the classroom, she got the full effect of it. And when she's telling me this, she is talking about how sick it made her. And I'm thinking to myself, that's child abuse. You can't do that to children. What must we do? And how have we gotten so off track with their children that we just, what are we doing wrong as parents? That's a great question. I think that uh, it's important for us to understand and separate the byproducts from the root causes. So, for example, if systems are created in which persons have a lack of access to resources, a lack of access to a competent and adequate education, a lack of access to health care, a lack of access to mental health um, facilities or mental health assistance in any regard, in any regard mm-hmm. the byproducts of what you will see are children or the offspring, uh, in, in many cases right now, of a drug epidemic, and one in which we didn't start. When you look at the, the era of crack, but when you look at uh, uh, the, the police brutality systems or this war, quote-unquote, on black and brown people within our communities, the removal of um, fathers from the home just based off of how cruel the penal system and unjust the penal system has been towards our fathers, like all of those things, while people may say, well, hey, those are excuses, no, those are real systemic issues that plague specifically uh, black and brown communities. So when you take away all of those resources, the byproducts, because those are the root causes, the byproducts of such are some of the things in which you describe. So when you ask the question, how do we uh, combat these issues or how do we get our folk, quote unquote, on track? I think there's a variety of things in which we have to do. One, recognizing and calling out that we did not create these systems in which we are currently having to navigate and live in. Again, that is first and foremost. We did not create mm-hmm. these systems. Mm-hmm. Now, secondly, how do we collectively as a community be willing to go the extra mile to ensure that our children get what they need? How do we go the extra mile to ensure that the parents who may not have the resources that they need get what they need and deserve? I think that requires those of us who do know to be able to spend adequate time within our communities. We can't just remain in silos or enclaves. That means that those of us who have the knowledge and the resources, we must run parenting class. We must run mentoring programs. We have to be able to be patient with our people, but impatient with progress, and consistently do the hard work to ensure that our folks get to what they need to be. That means more of us need to be not only in the classrooms or serving on research boards at our, uh, our prestigious institutions, but we need to be in the community, leading community seminars, leading community groups, and again, doing that hard work. Now, those things aren't sexy. Those things require time. Serving on a housing authority board or Mm -hmm. being in community again, running a parenting class, aren't things that are gonna bring you accolades or social media likes, but they're necessary. It's also gonna require us to be able to look ourselves in the mirror and see and question how much we love and value each other. Do I love you enough to sacrifice my time to help you out? That's a question I think each of us has to ask. I think it's a question that we can ask in a way in which um, is respectful. And I do believe that we love each other, 
we just have to continue to do these things in an, uh, in an efficient way. And I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback on that. Because okay, we came from a time where we had absolutely nothing. We, we didn't have, all we had were each other. We didn't have the best books. Half of us didn't know how to read and write. One day we were in bondage. The next day we were set free. What in the world did we do? Whatever we did, we held our head up with dignity and respect. And we weren't on social media discussing a football player's wife and whether she was covered up enough at an Oscars award show. You know, we, we had dignity. We cared. What happened to that? Where's that? Well, that's a great question. The, I, I think that I would argue that there are a lot of us who still have a great deal of dignity. We still care um, because we may see some of us saying certain things on social media doesn't mean that all of us are where we need to be. I would also make the argument that um, when we came first out of enslavement, we didn't have social media. We didn't have access to some of these other things that people have uh, access to. And that's a humanistic issue, not just one that's uh, predicated and regulated or specific to black folk. Mm-hmm. So I think in some instances, we can be a little harsh on each other mm-hmm. because we think that we have to be above this standard in which we see literally folks from across every ethnicity and community operating in the same level of quote-unquote dysfunction. So. That's kind of my response in that regard. It doesn't. It doesn't mean we excuse uh, where we are right now, and it doesn't mean that we don't need to be better. But I would just remain patient with us, or I would ask rather, to remain patient with our people, but then patient with progress, because our community as a whole, white, black, Latino, gold, or indifferent, all have a long way to go for the sake of humanity. But for black folks specifically, we know we have to do that much more in order for us to overcome and combat the systemic barriers that have been placed in front of us. What necessary steps are there that everyday Joe Blow citizens need to do to make sure that the people they put in office are truly, truly working for them, their constituents? What what must we do? Do we have to uh, email them every day? Do we have to go to every parent-teacher conference? Do we have to go to every city council meeting? What do we have to do to make sure that these politicians that I believe many of them, when they get in office, I believe they mean well, but something happens to many of them when they get in office and they lose their minds and they forget about the people? I think it's a combination of a multitude of different things that one requires organization. So yes, we need to show up at the city council meetings. Yes, we need to be writing and emailing our elected officials. Yes, we need to be attending the parent-teacher conferences as well as the parent-teacher association meetings. Yes, we have to do all of the above, but we know not one group of persons or just one person or one individual can do everything. So that's where the organization comes in, um, and that's collectively saying that we're willing to delegate some of this work, hold each other accountable, but ultimately go out and do it. And we will see change. I, I would argue that. I mean, across many of our cities and institutions as a whole, we've seen change uh, over the last 10, 15, 20 years. It's, it's kind of hard to recognize because we're in it, mm-hmm. but when we when we take the 10,000-foot approach and we look down, there are things that have changed for the better. We just have to continue improving on such and not be distracted by the things that aren't where we need them to be. Those are things that we have to just continue to work on. 
I was in the bathroom the other day. I was just walking through the bathroom, and I walked past the mirror, and I don't know why this happened. <laughs> I don't know why it happened, but I thought about George Santos because it, the news had just come out that he had filed re-election papers when he had assured Republicans that he was not going to do that. And I'm thinking to myself, Dr. Bellamy, how in the world did he even get an office to begin with? We well, we can't the, afford this. The sorcery and trickery is deep, and I think he is uh, he's a representation of, of in, in many instances, people uh, who are willing to put uh, individuals before principle and not doing thorough checks. But you know, I think he's also a representation of wanting to show that while we we black folk are often harsh on each other and say you know we should have did A, B, and C, or why we didn't do that, or why we talking about Sierra and Russell Williams, mm-hmm. Russell Wilson. Like, he's a prime example of folks over there don't got all this stuff together either. So True. It's not just us. It's a humanistic thing. And to me, uh, you know, I know George Santos identifies, uh, if I'm not mistaken, as Latino. Um, that's Latino folk business. That ain't none of my business. I'm focused on black folk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not just us. That's interesting. Because, you know, when we were growing up, you know what our parents would say. Uh, so-and-so can do so-and-so, so-and-so can do something. I don't care if so-and-so jumps off the wall, you're going to jump it as well. So it's like, I understand what you're saying, but still it just seems like uh, they get a pass. Why do they get a pass? Mm. Why I mean, do they get a pass? I mean, he's getting fried. He's in office. Uh, he's getting the paycheck. He's got the health care. He's, he's, he's chilling. Right? That's that's valid, yeah. It's, That's it, valid. It's unbelievable. Let's talk about our HBCUs. They're getting such love these days. Do you, first and foremost, do you see that continuing? Say, I'm sorry, can you say that one more time? Our HBCUs, they're getting so much love right now. Do you see that love continuing? Oh, undoubtedly. I think that uh, as we continue to see um, uh, black folk uh, have this reemergence and, and re um I guess re-falling in love with the culture we're understanding the value of doing what we have to do for ourselves I think also with the advent of social media is showing all the wonderful things that we can accomplish by attending our own institutions, supporting our own institutions, and loving ourselves which I really see a strong movement in and I have no reason to believe that that's going to stop anytime soon and okay this is something that's just personal in my brain so so many times now i see big white corporations they are jumping on the hbcu bandwagon which is fine but it seems as though the larger hbcus get so much of the love but you know i would love for that hbc love to be spread out amongst other schools how how do we tell these other corporations out there look we've got other HBCs used before uh, beside the ones that you always give to there are other HBCUs that are out here and they're doing good stuff and they deserve money just like the big ones well I think it's I think it's doing I think it's doing literally what what you just described we have to continue spreading the knowledge and, and spreading the word and I think uh, showing and proving that our folks uh, from across different institutions are just as worthy as the Morehouse, the Howells, the Swellmans, and so forth. 
when you're good, you look, again, when you look at Norfolk State, when you look at Virginia State, when you look at South Carolina State and so forth, uh, they deserve equal treatment. But, but that's where, again, those of us who are alum, those of us who are supporters of these institutions, we got to continue uh, beating the, the, the drum note uh, for justice for our HBCU. And, and I don't see that changing anytime as well. Um, as well as I think our, 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 press, our institutional presidents, alumni, board, alumni um, and the Board of Visitors or governing bodies, also have to look at kind of the way that uh, individuals are currently bringing forth attention to their institutions. So utilizing social media is in mm-hmm. very, uh, 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 not necessarily alternative, but util- utilizing social media in ways that are attracting to not only donors and supporters, but to students, um, making efforts to increase enrollment, uh, engaging with uh, non-traditional uh, methods to bring forth and, and matriculate students as well as matriculate supporters. All of those things play a role, which I see us getting to, and I, and I just hope it continues. Was Deion Sanders good for HBCUs? Was he good for HBCUs? Yes. Uh, I think Deion Sanders did what was good for Deion Sanders. Okay. And... <laughs> Let me ask you this. Talking about your family, how's it living with all those women? Tell me how you uh, navigate that. Four daughters? Uh, do I have that right? Four daughters? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's a time. My, my youngest daughter, Stokely, she, uh, she definitely she runs uh, the house if she lives up to her name. But, you know, I love it. I wouldn't trade it for the world. And, uh, girl, dad, here we are. The youngest one usually does run a household. That's that's true in every household, right? And and you want to tell everybody why you named her Stokely? Uh, yeah, I named her after Stokely Carmichael, the, the infamous activist uh, who coined the term black power, um, who, who was a freedom fighter through and through. And uh, she definitely, again, works diligently to live up to that name, even at three years old. She... Uh, <laughs> She is a, a, an activist in every sense of the word. <laughs> you said in every sense of the word. <laughs> we have about four minutes left. Tell us about yourself. What do you see on the horizon? What do you want to do? You have started so many organizations. I don't even know if I can name them all. The Black Millennial Political, Political Convention, We Too Code, Helping Young People Evolve. What What is all this going to lead to? Uh, just helping our people progress in advance. Um, I, I can't say what's going to be next because I kind of just listen and try to keep my ear for, for God's work and use the spirit of discernment to, to do what he calls me to go, mm-hmm. do what he calls me to do. And um, whatever he tells me that'll be next, that'll be what's next. But until then, I'm going to continue pushing and advocating for our people the best way in which I know how. And so is that, uh, is there an answer in there about whether you would run for political office again? Uh, I get asked that question maybe what, three or four times a week. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't see that happening right now. Okay, um, right be, now. It would be very hard for me to spend um, the first two months of, of my year every year arguing with people uh, when I could be spending that time with my students or in my community doing the work that's required of me at this time. So, yeah, that, that would be really tough, but, hey, you never know. What have you learned from those students at Virginia Union, uh, Virginia State and other uh, universities that you go to? What's the biggest lesson you've learned from them these days? Mm, to be patient and also understand that they do care and that they are, they are literally just waiting for us to impart knowledge within them so that they can then go out and implement our teachings in our communities. 
and it's, it's a sacrifice that I believe that we all have to make, but there's no greater feeling than being around loved ones who are eager and willing to learn, and then they go out and they do the work. So, you know, again, I absolutely love being at Virginia State University, um, and, and I wouldn't trade it for the world, and I love my students, and, and I think they know that I'm kind of like their dad, so when you say I got a couple girls, mm-hmm. I got I got maybe 200 children mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm, I tell them I'm responsible for all of them and I love them and I'm, I'm just proud to see the work in which they do day after day. You know, sometimes around here at Norfolk State, I call them my child or my children or whatever and then I, mm-hmm. I stop myself and I say okay Cheryl just say students but it doesn't come out that way and then mm-hmm. I think about it and all the people that I've talked to and interviewed and I remember one young, young lady she works in television here and she went to Norfolk State with me and then she went to Northeastern to get her master's and mm-hmm. she praises the fact that she went to Norfolk State because she said Norfolk State prepared her for Northeastern, prepared her for those big 300-person classes. That's what she means. She's not talking about the schoolwork itself, but she was talking about how it prepared her to handle herself on that campus. Mm. It's, mm. it's interesting. That's it. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. That is. Dr. West Bellamy, thank you for joining me so much today on the line. Everybody wants to know how they can get in contact with you or follow you on social media. So you yeah, can give uh, us some phone numbers or on, handles. Mm-hmm. Sure, I'm on, I'm on all socials, literally at Dr. West Bellamy, D-R-W-E-S-B-E-L-L-A-M-Y. Um, shoot me an email, wbellamy at vsu.edu. And let's all just continue to keep working. Thank you so much for joining us this Sunday morning. We appreciate you. We appreciate the work that you were doing. An educator, my mother was a teacher, and I know this. Teachers are chosen. You are chosen. Don't ever forget that and stay strong. Thank you again. Take care. All right, you all. Thanks for listening on the line. Cheryl Wilkerson will do it again next week. You all take care. Have a great Sunday. And always behold the green and gold.